Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, the Gospel of John, that you may believe, living water. The original date of this message was the 12th of March, 2023. Well, thank you all for joining us on this morning and making here on time. Good job. You're like, the phone just changes, Jason. (laughs) We're good. Turn with me to Exodus. I I don't want to waste any time. I want to get right into God's word. The the Lord has so much truth for us this morning, and we will get into John chapter 7. But before we do, as is often the case, as, as we've seen before in the gospel of John, there's lots of pointing back as Exodus points forward to Jesus. And we see this in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. That before we see Jesus as the living water, I want us all to see how God provides for the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 17, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. I think oftentimes we're really quick to point an accusing finger at the nation of Israel as we look at them in their waywardness and in their disobedience and in their arrogance and in their turning from the Lord and chasing after other gods. And we tend to distance ourselves from them. And we think, oh, I certainly couldn't be like that. And yet the reality is how many of us have really been thirsty? I'm not talking about spiritual thirst, which we will get into. I'm talking about physical thirst. Have you gone a day without drinking? Have you gone two days without drinking? You know, when we, when we talk about hunger and, and we talk about eating, you can go a day or two or three. I mean, some do a 40-day fast, right, where they're not eating anything, they're just drinking, and your body can handle it. But what would happen if you did 40 days without drinking? You would die. And also, when we talk about hunger and and, and I'm hungry and you're hungry and we don't eat this meal and then we push it off to the next meal and perhaps we don't eat that meal and perhaps we dedicate ourselves to the, to the Lord and say, hey, we're gonna have a fast for these three days. After a while, your, your stomach just kind of gets faked out by your mind and you're not thinking so much about it anymore. And it's not a constant thing. When you're thirsty, it's always nagging at you. It's It's miserable. Your, your throat gets drier and drier and drier and to the, the point to where breathing becomes difficult. So I can see where they come from. That what they desire isn't wrong. It's how they're going about it. Which is so much the case for us. It's how their heart responds to this need for water. And instead of responding in humility as they should, they respond in anger. And I'm not sure that Moses is too far away in his response, even at the beginning. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? No, not what shall I do for this people? What shall I do to this people? Hey, God, can you give me that stick and just just let me tap a couple of them on the head? Maybe that, that will help them. A little more and they'll stone me. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you stuck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me and that I go with you. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did in the sight of the elders, did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord not among us? Have you drunk of the living water? That's, that's the question for us all this morning as we turn to the gospel of John chapter seven. As we are going to see clearly Jesus present himself as living water and the only way to receive living water, eternal life. There is no way to receive, to gain, to be given the gift of eternal life outside of Jesus Christ. And as great as Moses was, Jesus is greater in every way imaginable. He's perfect in all his ways. So let's look at verses 1 all the way down to 39. And I want us to look at this as one unit because that's the way that the audience would have received it. We're talking about one event. Now it was a seven day long feast and so as a result it was quite a long event. But that's what we're looking at. And it's much better for us to get a whole picture of it and see it, all of its working pieces and how it fits together. And everything points to the last three verses as we will see. That is the thesis. That is the main point of all that happens here. Jesus wants to get to that point. And he wants to let all those know there that he has this invitation. If you will come to me, if you are thirsty spiritually, and I will not cast you out, come to me and drink and you'll never have to drink again. Verse one, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because 
it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And, and on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There is a lot for us to cover in here and and I need the Lord's help and you need the Lord's help to stick with me and to gather all that the Lord wants for us to chew on, to eat, so that we might leave here with a better understanding of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and all that he is. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible word and the truth that is contained in it. We thank you even for the promise of the Holy Spirit given by you, Lord Jesus, in the last verses of this morning's text. We ask that you would encourage those that need to be encouraged, admonish those that need to be admonished, save those that are yet to be saved, Lord. Bring them to your kingdom and be honored and glorified, Lord, and allow your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide this morning and use your word to accomplish that task, to draw us nearer to yourself that we might live for you all the days of our lives, that we might drink from you the living water, not just unto salvation the day that we are saved, but that we would drink from you daily, Lord, and walk with you and honor you in everything that we do. So guide our time now as only you can and speak to us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you'll notice in verse one that there's a a bit of a change that has happened. Jesus is no longer able to travel around freely and go wherever he wants. He's not going to Judea. He's not heading to Jerusalem. He's not going south. And there's a reason for that because the Jews are seeking to kill him. So he's staying around home. He's staying in Galilee. And then we're given this information in verse two. Something that you and I, unless we're Jewish, we, we don't think is too important. We don't really grasp the significance of what the context is speaking of. We just know, okay, so he, he, they're talking about a, a feast, a feast of the Jews called the Feast of the Booze, and, and we're told that it's near. And we must understand as we look at this how they would have interpreted listening to this. 
because there were three great feasts for the Jews and, and all the males of Israel were required to go to these feasts. So all of you men, you guys would have been going to these feasts. The first feast you, you know all about goes back to Exodus. It's called the Passover. It takes place in the spring uh, around March to April. The, the second feast is the Feast of Weeks. It's also known as Pentecost. That's a celebration really of the, the first fruits of harvest. And then the third feast is the one that is mentioned here, the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles, which as we will get into this, you will see that is significant. What is also significant is that among these three great feasts, you would think the Passover was the greatest because it is a, is it a depiction, a memory, a reminder of all that Yahweh did to save the nation of Israel and to deliver them out of Egypt into the promised land. And how on this particular night, the firstborn died. Unless you had a Passover lamb and you killed it, you drained its blood and you took that blood as, as gross as it sounds and you painted it over your doorpost. But that was the way of redemption. That was the way that Yahweh would redeem you, save you. If you were the firstborn. But that's not the most important that's not the one that the Jews were so excited to go to each and every year. You know what was the most important? The, ones that they, the one that they thought was the best, their favorite. In fact, they called it the festival. Almost like you could think of like, like a carnival or something. It was this one. It's the Feast of Booze. Why? Because it took place when the harvest was done. And you see, they were an agricultural society, agrarian society. They're not like us. They didn't go to Walmart and Costco to get their food. They were more like the Siawis in the jungles of Papua New Guinea who lived day to day, hand to mouth. And so depending on how good the harvest was, the more rejoicing they would do. But they recognized that, that their work then would bring about what? Food. And this harvest... It was difficult work. And they never knew exactly how much they were going to get. But they knew that it was directly proportional to the goodness of God. Then that goodness of God was on display as they took that. They harvested it. And then they stored it in their barns. And after all of that harvesting and all of that hard work and all of that sweat was done, then it was time for the Feast of Booze. The Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a, a time of them to remembering how God provided, looked after the nation of Israel while they were walking in the wilderness. How he had delivered them. It was a time of rejoicing. And in Leviticus chapter 23, God commanded that the, that the people, in order to remember this time, that they would build these makeshift little tents. They're called booze, but we could think of them as tents because really what this was all about was like a national camp out, like how we're gonna have our, our, our church family camp here next month at the end of April. And I would encourage all of you to come because why it is a sweet, fun, great time. In the same way, they were excited about this national camp out. Everybody would come. And they were re required to use some of the same trees that were used in the wilderness. They'd get olive branches and palm branches and willow and myrtle. And, and then they'd construct these, these makeshift little tents, these small little houses. What history says was that they, they couldn't construct the outer walls to make them too thick because they wanted the sun to be able to shine through to remind them how God was leading them. And then with the roof, they had to leave a little section that was open so that they could see the stars at night and remember God's faithfulness. And so it was a time where everyone would come and they'd build these little tents. And if you lived in Jerusalem, you were set because all of the roofs were, were flat. So you could build this right on top of your roof. And you probably, you did this every year so you knew exactly how to do it. If you were visiting, you would come and you would do it right on the street. 
So there's literally thousands of these little houses, these little tents all over the place. And it's all for one purpose, to praise God, to remember his protection, his provision for them, his deliverance, the redemption that they have in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that in Nehemiah chapter eight, you read that they actually forgot about doing this, that the nation of Israel at some point stops doing this. They forgot the word. We know that from Ezra. They stopped reading the word. Why? Because the king stopped reading the word. And they come back to God's word and then they're reminded of what they were supposed to be doing. So they start doing this same feast of booze. And this time they're just overflowing with joy and excitement over God's provision. And they add some other layers to it as to what they do. What they then began doing was they'd have a priest come. And the priest would meet with all the people. And the priest would lead them down to the pool of Siloam. And he'd have this great big golden pitcher. And he'd fill this this pitcher up. And as he filled this pitcher up, they would in unison with one another, chant out Isaiah 12, 3. Will, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Everything was pointing to salvation. How they had been saved from Egypt and brought to the promised land by God. And then that, that wasn't it. He'd, he'd fill up that great big pitcher that was enough for the entire week. And then he'd lead this procession, everybody following him back to the temple, up the stairs to the altar. Then he'd dump out that water into the bowl that was a bowl for libation where you would would offer up basically a water offering to the Lord. And as he let all that water fall onto the altar, they would sing songs of praise, psalms of praise. And since I came back from the conference and have been pouring over this text and preparing this sermon, my, my mind's gone to the song by Shane and Shane. I said this wrong in the first service and they're all probably 38? It's Psalm 34. If you guys don't know Shane and Shane, write, write them down in your notes and, and pull up a YouTube. Don't do it now because everybody will hear you. It'll be embarrassing. Psalm 34, it, it says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what they were doing, encouraging one another, worshiping the Lord as they gathered together for the seven days. And all that's the backdrop for where we're going to go this morning. I, I want to look at this as kind of a, like a screenplay unfolding before us as, as we watch Jesus make his way through this feast, this glorious feast, this, this festival that everybody loved so much. We're going to take it in Acts, three different Acts. The first Act, we could look at as having two scenes to it. The the before Jesus and his brothers get to this particular feast, and then the beginning of the feast, like the first day. And I know what your notes say. You're going to have to change them. Sorry, that's what happens when I prepare this later after a conference. Instead of confusion about Jesus presented, write this down, drinking the water of confusion. Because that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a whole bunch of people drinking the water of confusion. They're confused as to who Jesus is. And my prayer is that this morning you would receive more clarity as to who Jesus Christ is because of his word. Act two is going to be the middle of the feast. The first act was one to 13. Acts 2, the middle of the feast, starts in verse 14 and goes all the way to 36. This is drinking the water of poor judgment. Drinking the water of poor judgment. You'll see it up on on the screen later. You you can get it. But change the verses. It's it's 14 all the way to 36. And then finally, we're going to get to Act 3. This is the final day. The final day of the feast. And here we're going to see drinking the living water of eternal life. That is what Jesus makes as an, as an offer. Please come to me, all you who are thirsty. Drink. 
and live and live forever. But notice where he starts. Where he starts is what we see first, those who have drunk the water of confusion. And he starts with those that are most likely, I would assume, the closest to Jesus. I'm thinking there's nobody who knew Jesus better than these guys. Why? Because they're his brothers. They've grown up with Jesus. And from what we know, even what's been presented to us, it would seem that Joseph is dead. The dad is gone. And do you know who the big old brother is? It's Jesus. So these guys, can you imagine? They grow up with Jesus Christ as their older brother. Talk about shoes that you could never fill. Remember, he's sinless. So everything that Jesus did was right. And yet, even as they begin to hear all the things that Jesus had done, and it would seem that they haven't seen anything yet, what do they say? They come to Jesus with worldly philosophy and a worldly plan. And they say, hey, let's go to the feast together. Because you need to stop doing all this work here. You need to go there and you need to do some of these miracles. Why? Because there's going to be thousands, if not millions of people there, Jesus. Yeah, go there and do this. Perhaps another alternate motivation was, well, then we'll get to see too. If what you do is true, that's what's implied. We're We're not really believing you quite yet. But after we see this, well, then we'll believe. And God in his grace, he doesn't keep James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. That's Jesus' brothers. We see them named in Matthew. He doesn't keep them in this state forever. We know that James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He, he becomes saved. When we get to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, as they're all gathered together, it says, and the brothers. Literally, it's Jesus' brothers. It doesn't mean believers. It means Jesus' brothers, although they were believers. But at this point, they're not. Why? Because they're confused as to who Jesus is. And they can only think in, in terms of the world. Notice who Jesus says they're with. He says, man, Satan, the devil hates me, but he's good with you guys. What's implied? You're on his side. Because if you weren't, then he would hate you like he hates me. That's what he's going to say to the disciples. So they were pawns of Satan. They were still following the world. And I wonder if on top of all of this, that this was just a difficult decision for Jesus to make. It's really for easy for us to just say, oh, well, it was the will of the Father that he doesn't go then, so obviously he doesn't go. But think about this. How many of you love to go camping as a family? Well, I know it's a whole bunch of us because every time we have a family camp, like most of the church goes to the family camp. This is like what their family camp was for each particular family. They, they got to do the tent thing for a week together with all these other families. And they did this every year. And so Jesus, for how many 20 plus years, has been doing this. We we don't know when Joseph died, so maybe Jesus had been leading this in this procession for so many years. And, And perhaps this was a sweet, sweet time for Jesus as he considered spending time with his brothers and his mom and going and doing this. And yet they present him with a plan and he says no. Why? Because that's the world's plan. There's a lesson for us in this. Do you know that there there are church professionals and they would come into our church this morning and they would present their plan on how we can just build Rancho Baptist Church and just make it awesome and larger and larger and larger. And before we know it, we, we won't be able to fit in this building and we'll have to blow this building up and make it bigger. And you know what they would say we need to do is stop spending so much time in the word of God, Jason. Stop talking about hell, even though Jesus talks about it all over. Stop talking about sin. 
And, and on top of all of that, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, your, your worship is good, but, it, but it's, it's not enough. It needs to be louder. It needs to be more emotional. You need to just draw people in and get them all excited through the music. It doesn't, and especially your music is, it's, it's, it's too biblical. No, you, you need to do something else. And these lights, they're too bright. And those chairs, no, and you don't have coffee back there. You don't have donuts every week. And you don't have this and that. No, change all of these things. And then the crowds will come. And you'll fill up this place. Now, that's the world's plan. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to follow this plan. That's, that's not my father's plan. That's not my plan. And why is it? Because they're wanting to kill him. Notice that that, that's a good lesson for us as well. If Jesus Christ recognizes what evil is and he steers away from it, don't you think you should steer away from evil? Shouldn't I steer away from evil? If there's something that I repeatedly stumble with, whether that's alcohol, well, well then don't go to a bar and think that that is a great place for you to evangelize. If you have a problem with with buying too much food, don't go to Costco when you're hungry. Right? There's things that we can do that that can steer us. You have a problem with porn. Get some help with your phone, some accountability. Recognize that there are are things where you need to just, I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to take the wide round. That's what Jesus is doing. This is God. And he says, no, it's not the time yet. Because I don't want to go into Jerusalem and attract this great big crowd. Because that's not what I've come for. What I've come for is something much more significant. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. And we'll see that in the life of Jesus. Oh, so clearly. But I wonder if there are things that we listen to the world a whole lot more than we, than we should. It's tax season. Hey, who's going to know if you kind of cut this corner and that corner? The the Lord will. How about on the freeway? Everybody else is speeding. Why not just keep up with all of them? Jesus says, my time is not yet. He knows exactly what the Lord is doing. That's all the beginning of the feast, or the before the feast. Verse 10 starts the beginning of the feast. And it almost seems that Jesus lies to them. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in in secret. Did Jesus lie to them? No, he said, hey, I'm not going right now. I'm not going with you all. I'm not going on your terms, I'm going on my terms. I'm going as the Messiah with this plan in mind, and that plan is the plan of the fathers, it's not the plan of you. He wants to go wisely. A good lesson for us. Notice this as well. And the way everything lines itself up, this will be Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem until he celebrates the Passover the last time with his disciples. And do you know what happens the very next day after that? He becomes crucified. At that same time, he then will go to the cross. He will not come to Jerusalem again. This is the last time that he's going to go to Jerusalem. It would seem it's about six months before he then hangs upon the cross. So he goes to Jerusalem, even though all the tension's high. And then we see in verse 11, again, pointing back to verse 1, this isn't just random Jews that, that it's speaking of. These are the leaders, and they're confused about Jesus. Why? Because they don't look at him as the Savior. They look at him as an enemy. They look at him as someone who's getting in their way, who doesn't follow their traditions. And so what do they do? They want him out of the picture. Why is this? Because darkness hates the light. We've seen it in John chapter 3 already, 19 to 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved what? The darkness rather than the light. That's what they love. For their deeds are evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So when light comes, the darkness hides. And men love darkness rather than the light. And so what do they do? They keep pushing back on Jesus until finally they want to kill Jesus and they're all up for this plan right now. But there's more confusion. It's not just in the leaders. We see that the crowd, all those that were gathered, they're talking about Jesus. He's there, but he seems to be, again, hidden. We won't see Jesus until we get to the middle of the feast, probably the third or fourth day. But people are talking about him everywhere. And notice here as the crowd talks, they, there's two different ideas on who Jesus is. Some say, oh, he's a good man. That, that sounds like believers. And others say, oh, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. He is a, a what? He's a charlatan. He's a deceiver. But if you think that those who say that Jesus is a good man are the representatives of those that believe in him, that's not the case. Why? Because that doesn't go far enough. Jesus was more than just a good man. There were many people during this day, no doubt most of the rabbis, they would say, oh, well, he's a good man. Write this down. Jesus wasn't a good man. He was the God man. He wasn't just a good man. He was perfectly good. And all that he is, all that he doesn't have, and all that he ever will be. So to think Jesus is just a good man is not seeing Jesus for who he truly is. You're confused about Jesus if you believe that he's just a good man. Because Jesus himself said there's no one good except for God. And really he's pointing to himself and I am God. And you are not good and I am not good. And there's only one that has been good and that is Jesus Christ. And so they're missing Jesus. Why? Because they're so confused about who Jesus is that they've made this Jesus of their own imagination. One who isn't the Messiah but has to prove it to them in a worldly fashion. The others who believe that that Jesus is their enemy. And then this last group are off on their understanding and confusing of Jesus because they don't truly understand who he is. That he is God. And all of that is just act one. And then we get up to act two. This is the middle of the feast. This is the drinking of the water of poor judgment. And, and we see this beginning right in verse 14, but it was now the midst of the feast. And Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the Jews, what, they're astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Well, he's not just a man. That's why you guys are drawing the wrong conclusions. He's much more than that. He's God. So he's not limited like the rest of us like the rest of your rabbis. So they're thinking in terms of what you and I would normally think, but this is God. And Jesus has already presented himself as God, but they're not buying it. Instead, they'd rather have their own view of Jesus. And since he didn't go to the school of Gamaliel and he didn't go through all the training like all the other rabbis did, they they can't figure it out. They can't understand where he got all this knowledge how he is so incredibly knowledgeable and learned. It doesn't make any sense. All they have to do is listen to him and it would make perfect sense because then how does he respond? Well, what, what I'm saying is from the father. It's not, not my knowledge base, it's his. I'm God and I'm representing God. I'm the only one that has been with God. I am God, just as John starts off his gospel. But they miss all of this. And it's why Jesus then tells them, you You can't judge according to appearance. But you need to judge with righteous judgment, which means you need God's help to make things clear. Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And that's what we see. That a lot of what they think Jesus is saying is just foolishness. Notice as he comes, he doesn't do a miracle. That's what his brothers wanted him to do. He, he kind of hides out for the first couple days of this feast. And then when it's time for him to present himself, he goes to the temple and he teaches. 
He recognizes that what they need more than anything else is the word of God proclaimed to them. That's what we all need. We need God's word. But notice the timing in all of this. It's the middle of the feast. They'd spent so many days already rejoicing in the faithfulness of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, the perseverance of God for their people that they are still alive as a nation. They're reenacting God's faithfulness to them every day and they're doing it by living in these little tabernacles, these little tents. And as they're doing this, God comes in the form of a human tent and walks among them. He doesn't just walk, he talks, he speaks, he preaches. He gives them the very words of God. And yet they still miss him. They respond, what are you talking about? You must have a demon. What what do you mean they're, they're trying to kill you? We're not trying to kill you. The response kind of makes sense if you go back to Genesis 3.15 and you think about that there are really only two kinds of people in this world. As presented to us in scripture, you have those that are the seed of the women, of the woman, Eve, pointing to Jesus Christ coming as the savior and all those that would believe in him which is a small group. Our conference, we, we spent time all week going over the remnant of Jesus Christ and what that means. Small little group that, that God by his grace brings to himself. You have that group and then you have Satan and his group, right? The, the seed of the serpent really pointing to Satan and what Satan would do. And so it makes sense in some way that they would respond, well, you must be of the devil. But again, they're drawing the wrong conclusions. They've missed who Jesus is. He's not of the devil. He is God. That is why he can say what he says. And how does Jesus respond? Again and again, he points them to the fact that he is God and that everything that he says is coming from God. And then he lets them know that they're, that they're also off on their judgment based upon the law and the Sabbath. And he reminds them of the last time he was in Jerusalem, which is when he did this miracle with this man that couldn't make it into the pool. And then they all turn and up in arms because he did it on the Sabbath. Saying he can't do any work on the Sabbath, not even heal someone. So he brings up circumcision. He says, well, wait a minute. Circumcision is required of the law. So when someone needs to be circumcised and it so happens that when they're born, the day that they're going to be circumcised falls on the Sabbath, what do you guys do? Oh, yes, you guys do that procedure of circumcision on it. But you don't call that a work but you call what I did a miracle that, that basically made this man's whole body better, not just one particular part of him. Don't you see you're flipping things upside down? And so he's correcting them even on their understanding of, of the law of God and on the Sabbath. And then we see that, that some were wrong on where he came from as they kind of hold themselves up in this high regard and say, oh, well, I, maybe, maybe they actually believe he is the Christ, but we know he's not the Christ. Why? Because we know where he comes from. And when the Christ comes, we're not gonna know where he comes from. Well, that's not true. Micah 5.2 says that the, that the Christ is gonna be born in Bethlehem. And it so happens that's where Jesus was from. But if we only think about Jesus coming from Bethlehem, we're not listening to him. Because he's been saying over and over again, where does he come from? He comes from heaven. He comes from God. And so as he presents that argument, what happens again, they get all upset. But even in this, we see some of God's grace extended. 
No man is able to lay, lay a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. Who's sovereign? Who's in control of all things? Our God is. What an encouragement for us all to consider this morning with whatever you might be going through. Right here today, perhaps sickness, perhaps some financial strain that is upon you, perhaps it's friction in the home. All of these things, do they escape the gaze, the control of our God? Nothing, nothing escapes him. He's in control of all things. We can trust him in all things, just as Jesus could trust him in this knowing that even though they wanted to lay a hand on him, they wouldn't be able to. What would that look like? You get him. I I can't move, (laughs) right? I mean, they're trying to get him. He's right there, but, but they can't get him. Why? Because God is in control. Oh, the encouragement to know that the Lord is in control of everything that happens to us each and every day. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me and you will will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And and they don't get it. They're like, what what does he mean? He's gonna go to the Persia to the the Greeks and he's gonna talk to them, to the Gentiles, instead of to us, to the Jews. What, what, What does he mean? Well, he's talking about the ascension. He's talking about going back to the Father. But they don't understand this. But even in this, Jesus is extending so much grace. How? By letting them know, hey, I'm only going to be with you for a short time. And then I'm gone. Listen to me today. Not tomorrow. Not the day after that because I'm going to be gone soon. Maybe that's your word from the Lord this morning. Listen to what he is saying today through his word to you. To follow him, to trust him, to know that he is sovereign. And to understand that he is working all things out according to his plan. So we first, we see those who are drinking the water of confusion, listening to the world listening to others, confused as to who Jesus Christ is, and do we not have a message to give to them? The real Jesus that we can give to them. Second, those who drink the, the water of poor judgment, they hear what Jesus says, but they draw all the wrong conclusions. They don't really listen to what Jesus says. Why? Because they don't want to. They enjoy the darkness more. And finally, what we see in the final act three, the last day of the feast, is the drinking of the living water of eternal life. Look at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Turn back with me real quick to to Numbers. Numbers chapter 20. For Moses doesn't end the way that he starts. And Moses gives us this beautiful picture of what not to do. Don't treat God as unholy. Don't think that you can mess up God's plans. That Jesus Christ won't be praised. That Jesus Christ won't be exalted. He will. One day, everyone will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you have trusted him in this life as Savior or not, if you have trusted him in this life as your Savior, then you will rejoice and you will bow down down willingly. If you have not trusted him in him as your Savior in this life, then you will bow before him. And then you will go and spend all of eternity in hell in eternal torment and punishment for your sins. Look at what happens in Numbers chapter 20. Again, they find themselves thirsty. 
And they go to Moses and Aaron and look at what the brothers do as God speaks to them. Take the rock, or sorry, take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. So God wants all of them, all of the nation of Israel to be looking at them. Speak to the rock before their eyes, before all of the congregation, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Pretty easy instructions. Have everybody gather. You stand. You speak to the rock and then the water comes. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, listen now you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Well, wait a minute. You're not the one that's bringing the water out of the rock. Moses is speaking out of anger. Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. Notice the grace of God that even though Moses didn't obey, God still graciously gave them water. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. What's the big deal? Why was God so upset with Moses? And all he did is hit the rock twice and look at the water still came out. It's because of the picture that it is of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is only going to die once. His body's only gonna be beaten once. His blood is only gonna be spilled once. Shed for the atoning of sins once. Once and for all, that's the greatness, the magnitude, the majesty, the wonder of Christ's work upon the cross. And what is Moses doing? He's spitting on it. He's kicking it. He's making it smaller, littler than it truly is. And so God says, no. You've made me look way too small in front of all the people. Now that with the background, look at what Jesus does again. On the last day of the great, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood. That's not what a rabbi does. A rabbi sits when he teaches. And then did you notice the, the verbiage used, at least in my New American Standard, it says, and cried out. So G, he's all emotional and he cries? No, that's not what this word means. It, it, it's an emphasizer word to say that he spoke as loud as he could to get everybody's attention. Because this is so significant of what he is about to say. And then he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see, the last day of the feast was the most important of them all. The nation of Israel, they would gather around the temple again. And, and, and the priests would grab this great big pitcher of water with all the water left from the previous six days. This is the last day. And he, he poured that in, into the bowl. But before he did that, you know what he would do with all the other priests? They would walk around the altar seven times to symbolize the walls of Jericho falling, to remind them of the power of God to save. And then he would get that bowl and he'd, and he'd pour that out as a drink offering to the Lord. And then all the people along with the, the priests, you know what they would cry out? Hoshiana. Do you know what that means? Literally, it means save now. Save now. As you saved before, save now. Save us now. And could it be that it was right at that opportunity, that time, right after everybody said that and there was a bit of a pause, that Jesus then stands up, that he then says, if you are thirsty, come to me, drink. And he clarifies and lets them know that he's not talking about real water. Saying that's the picture. But what I have for you is greater than that. Believe in me. And if you believe in me, look at the result of you believing in me. I'm going to bless you beyond blessing. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and reside in you. And, and the Holy Spirit is going to be like rivers of living water in you. That's plural. 
That doesn't just mean a small little twinkly river that, you know, you can stand in with your feet and stop it. It's rivers, multiple rivers. It's the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us. For those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is is the power that allows us to change and become more and more like Jesus Christ. That allows us as we speak to share Christ with others to where their, their eyes can be opened. That the Lord wants to use us in the ministry of reconciliation as the word talks about, to share him with others. Oh, the grace of God that he would do this for us as we believe in Jesus and this wonderful invitation that he gives out to everyone. It's, it's no wonder that they want to kill him. As he stands up and he says, that, that's nothing. Believe in me and it'll change everything forever for you. That's the picture. That's what Jesus is saying. So what do we do? We don't, we don't do these feasts First, thinking about the feast, you have a reason to rejoice. As you consider the Passover, which is going to come after this, and Jesus Christ laying his life down upon the cross, have you believed in him? Have you recognized that you're a sinner? And that right now, if you were to die in your sins without believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would spend all of eternity in hell for the punishment, the payment of your sins. Because our God, God, is a holy God. And he cannot let any sin go unpunished. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then then the greatest exchange ever happens. His righteousness for your sin. His right living, his perfect right living, and all that he is, is exchanged, given to you, credited to your account like billions of dollars into your bank account. That is given to you because of Christ. Have you believed? Man, if you have, then you have all the reason to rejoice with all of us as as we finish up our time and sing praises to him this morning. Second, what what about those of us who have, have believed? What feast are we, are we living in, so to speak? Are we in the feast of the booze? Is the harvest complete? No, the harvest is not complete. What, what does the word of God say? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord to send out workers. Hey, we are the workers. We are Christ's church. He has us here in this community in this area, wherever you live, whether it's Temecula, Menifee, Marietta, help me out, Wildemar, Anza, anywhere, he has you there that you would be lights for him. That through you, that this living water could go to them. We, we must understand this wonderful also huge responsibility that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. That others might join us on this, with what will be this, this wonderful festival for all of eternity, rejoicing with our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever and ever and ever with no end in sight, right? We're talking about eternity being with God in heaven, which will be heaven on earth, which will be with all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. You are so good. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the many, many ways that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter, we're only on John chapter 7, but time and time again, Lord Jesus, we see your goodness We see your grace on full display and we see your work of redemption. We see that you are the son of God. We see that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has not trusted in you as their savior, that you would open their eyes and bring them to yourself, Lord. And those of us that know you May we rejoice all the greater for all that we have in you. 
for how you've revealed yourself to us, that you are our living water and that that living water is something that we continue to enjoy day in and day out. And we praise you for the Holy Spirit and him indwelling us. And we praise you for the new nature that you have given us. And we praise you for your word. And we praise you for the church, for this church. And the blessing that we have in fellowship with one another. So be honored as we wrap up our time in song in response to how good you are to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.